Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. What's in conquering my uh, dominating my colonial colony? Ah, Jesus. I don't know. We're talking Robert Evans behind the bastards, a badly introduced podcast about even worse people. Today, we're doing another motherfucking episode about white English dudes in Africa in the 1800s. So strap the fuck in, everybody. Uh, my guest today... Also, uh, don't as, ever as, say you don't know how to do an intro to a podcast ever again. That was phenomenal. Continue. Thank you. Thank you. My guest today, Jason Petty, a.k.a. Pro West West. <laughs> I'm coming in blind, so I had no idea we were doing another white colonial in Africa. This is great. Oh, yeah. We're not we're not doing another white colonial in Africa, actually. Oh. We're doing the white colonial in Africa. We okay. are talking about the guy we're talking about today, prop, might be the whitest man who ever lived. Um we are talking about Cecil motherfucking Rhodes. That boy's name is Cecil. Cecil. Let's go. Cecil, and he's the namesake of Rhodesia. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. No, tell me it's not. Rhodesia's named after him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord. Rhodesia was his personal property. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, the, the Cecil Rhodes is not just, like, an influential imperialist. He's one of, no. like, he's Hitler, Stalin, Mao level of influential yeah. in the world. Yeah. Um, 
He is, in addition to owning Rhodesia and another nation as his private property, he governed a third country. He controlled 90 to 95% of the world's diamond supply. Uh, oh, and by the way, he helped invent apartheid. Um, yeah. So, like, that, this yeah. is the... Yeah. That's where I know him from, is the yeah. apartheid. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, uh, here we go. That's why I didn't know he... I didn't think about the Rhodesia thing. I just know him from the apartheid stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah, Woo. yeah. So you're so saying, he's, like, he's bastard with a capital B, bold, underlined, three exclamation points? Yeah, he's one of the big ones. Yeah. He's one of the big ones. Yo, and he, he is, like, varsity. the arc... Like, when you see the... When you see, like the fucking like the fashy proud boy types out in the street he's what every uh-huh. every one of them wants to be like cecil rhodes lived the dream life of an imperialist Dang. um yeah yeah it's Dang. cool stuff prop it's cool stuff this I is one of <laughs> i can't wait dude this is one of those episodes where I included a bunch of quotes from him and then I had to go through the quotes and edit out uh, the N-word repeatedly Here because he says it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yo, um, I, okay, so like, this, this, is what I, this is why I'm smiling so much. I remember uh, early on in my career, there was this like venture capitalist guy that just really took a liking to me because he's super wealthy, super white, but he loved hip hop. So... He was a, essentially trying to help mentor me in my business thoughts. But mm-hmm. he would say things like, I bought that company because who says you can't? <laughs> okay. And then he would be like, and his whole thing was like, dude, that's, he's like, that's the motto you got to live by. Who says you can't? You know, you just go pursue your dreams. Who says you can't do it? And I just thought, okay, I, you're just... Where do I start, man? Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you're you're trying to motivate me, but you turning me to fuck off. Cause I'm like, this, yeah. what do you mean who says you can't? I mean, actually, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I'm like, nah, I don't I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm gonna I don't know if I'm gonna go down this road. But yeah, it's, so it's, that's why I giggles because yeah. I was like, yo, he was telling me this as like a good thing. Like, hey man, who says you can't? Well, yeah, I think it's you got one of those you got one of those reminders that we yeah. all get from time to time that there are within this planet there are multiple planets and that guy lives on a different planet. It's on a different one. This just yeah. that's not yeah. ours. He's on the who says you can't planet. He's on the yeah, and I'm just like yeah. I just I God okay I guess. Yeah, because for me I have the I do have who says you can't feelings, but it's when I'm looking at like. Like like a like a really fancy bag of coffee. Like ah, it's twenty five dollars for this bag of coffee. Yeah, who says I can't? Like yeah, fuck yeah it, I'll get I'll get the nice coffee. I like yeah. how you translated that into like prop speech. That's great. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. A little coffee whereas reference. with him, it's like the the company that makes the coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, this is his family. It's, yeah, you know, it's it's their yeah, it's their granddad's plantation yeah. in Colombia. You know what I'm saying? And he's like. I want a coffee company. You know who says you yeah. can't? I'll just buy yeah. it from them. I'll give them a good and, price. You're and that's is very appropriate because Cecil Rhodes is that guy, but he's he's a step above that guy. So that guy's a step above you and I. We we yeah. we say that when we think about buying a nice product. He thinks yes. about that when he, Cecil Rhodes was that for nations. Yeah, like, who says I can't? <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna take it. Like <laughs> I'm just gonna hey, take who's this. In 
Yeah. Uh, okay. Not so yeah. this is the guy we're getting into. Um, right. And I'm going to I'm just going to start. Cecil John Rhodes was born on July 5th, 1853 in the hilariously named town of. Are you ready for this prop? Here we go. Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire, <laughs> England. Um, probably pronounced wrong. Who cares? It's the English. Um, Bishop Stortford. Not a town name, but is a town name. But that's not what you should name a town. I wish I understood that. I wish I understood yeah. more like language etymology of yeah. like British things like Thornberry and yeah. Worcestershire. Like why? Yeah, Worcestershire. Wooster, I think, is how you're supposed to say it. Like yeah. Like, yeah. what's the war? Ch- what's like, going on with you people? So, why somebody uh, somebody why said do that, that that obviously must be 2020 safe word and nobody can figure out how to pronounce it. And that's why everything's so fucked up. That's ah, that's a good get. That's a good. Yeah, guess. I yeah. I feel like I feel like we just all kind of left the English alone on their island for too long. And that's was a bad call. Yeah, because that little yeah. t- that little teeny island conquered the planet. Yeah, and, and think, they came up with some weird things to ways yeah, to pronounce words and weird ways to pronounce things. Yes, and very yes, but the bland genocides food. were worse. Yeah, just why so, can't y'all have no salt? Just add salt we were, to stuff. Anyway, if you're English, this might be a hard episode to listen to because we're we're going to be going off. Um, right. But yeah, anyway. So, uh, Cecil was the fifth son of Reverend Francis William Rhodes uh, and Louisa Peacock. His best biographer, probably Robert Rotberg, calls the mm. Rhodes family circumstances modest but hardly deprived. And okay. this is something I'll probably quibble with him on a bit because modest is not how I would describe the Rhodes That's family. Um, both sides of his family owned a significant amount of property. As late as 1901, the Rhodes siblings were receiving rent payments from 1,600 properties in Bishop's Yeah, that's Stortford. not modest. That's not modest in yeah. my book. That's not modest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be fair to say that Cecil never worried about money in his entire life. Yeah, um, the Rhodes were of modest means, though, within the world of the British upper crust. Yeah. So within the the social environment they existed in, they were middle class, so but like they existed money. in the upper like 5% of, of the British nation, you know? Yeah. There's, there's the yeah. new money. Yeah. Yeah. Got that, the new money. Yeah. Yeah. They got, the, like they got the C class. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> they rent. They're that like today, they're the kind of family that rents yachts a couple of times a year, but doesn't yeah, own one because they just can't it. handle those slip fees. Yeah. yeah got it. Got it. So okay. uh, Cecil's mother and father spawned uh, copiously. They produced nine children in very quick Sheesh. succession. Uh, seven of those kids survived to adulthood, which means they were pretty good at being parents by the standards of the time. You get seven and nine to adulthood, you're doing all right in 1850s. That's, that's, that's a pretty good percentage because that polio yeah. boy. Yeah, it's like, a. Oof, yeah. Game. It's like. Uh, care about your kids? Nuh-uh, no, yeah. no. Yeah, no, it should have been more like five. Yeah, so, really. Cecil was child number four, uh, okay. the middle kid, and he was most definitely his mama's boy. Um, Rickett, the family servant, and I should state... That boy's name is fam- Rickett? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had a family servant named Rickett. His name Rickett? What? <laughs> That's like what you put into a show if you're making fun of the British upper, upper yes. crust, is you give yes. them a servant named Rickett? <laughs> you give him a servant named after a disease. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand what's wrong with y'all putting U's in Uh, words randomly. Very funny. Um, So yeah, the family servant Rickett later recalled, he was his mother's boy, her favorite. 
<laughs> I mainly included that quote, yeah, just because I wanted to laugh at the fact that they had a servant named Rickett. Um, yeah. So Cecil was the only one of his siblings whose mother called him my darling. Uh, and okay. by all accounts, she was a very nurturing mother. While her okay. children were young, she acted as their teacher, helping them learn to read and write. Uh, Cecil's father was a very different sort of parent. The couple had married when she was 28 and he was 36, which was unusual because that's very old for a woman to get married yeah. in this period of time. Like, she's yeah. a spinster at 28. It's crazy. Um, so you you would say that like he he actually I was like sorry got, Sophie that's just the way they talked in the in the, back then I'm, I'm just ridiculous <laughs> Meg's his agent it Sophie yeah. <laughs> it's awful I mean <laughs> low key all of the rich people back then were into teenagers yes <laughs> like that's the way it worked in those days yes Not and it was much messed up has no. yeah so you got to give Cecil's dad credit for you know marrying someone who's an actual adult um. That's good. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but this did mean that he was in his 50s by the time Cecil came into the picture. He was okay. not a super fun dad, uh, was a very strict disciplinarian, and the children often ran to their mother for comfort. Uh, Robert Rotberg, Cecil's biographer, or Cecil's biographer, writes, quote, Miss Rhodes was unusually skilled in establishing supportive relations. Well-liked okay. by contemporaries and servants, she provided an ample measure of love for her children, especially Cecil. It was that special love which was the foundation of his invincible self-confidence, an affirmative sense of self which was both a spur to accomplishment and a resilient buffer against the ravages of failure. To his wow. credit and discredit, Rhodes throughout his lifetime was remarkably free of both guilt and shame so his mom is very supportive and maybe she Dog. should have been a little less supportive Dog. let me tell <laughs> let me tell you the the, the 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 parent that actually cares about their kids biggest fear is that you were you actually showed your favorites and yeah. like cared for one more than the other and then one of them is like well adjusted and wonderful and then the other one's like you know in and out of rehab and you're like not to shame anybody for that, but you're just like, or the one, and then like in this scenario, the one you actually unfairly favored turns out to be the piece of crap that you, yeah. you was trying to avoid. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's kind of where we're, where this story is a lead, yeah, unfortunately. So yeah, he grows up, um, yeah, very, very, very much coddled by his mama. Uh, this, And he grew up very entitled as a result of this. And this is particularly illustrated by an anecdote from his nurse. When he was five or six years old, she just made jam and had set it up high to cool. She left the room for a few minutes and she came back. Uh, the jam was gone and Cecil had clearly eaten it. So I'm mm -hmm. going to quote her relating the rest of this story. Cecil, did you eat that jam? Yes, he replied. I am sorry it's gone. It was very good. Make some more. <laughs> I, I, I can't take any of this seriously. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, that was a, that, first of all, spot on. Great accent. Yeah. Um, and. This just boy's like, five and he's giving orders to adults. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, hey, make more. Mm -hmm. I just, I wish Cecil yeah. was Caesar. So, or, or Cecil. So, when a nurse comes in and says, Did you eat that jam? And he goes, Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. Make some more. Amazing. Yeah. If he was Cecil. Yeah. She described his attitude as superior, and he just told her to make more jam and walked away whistling. Um, the nurse went bomb. up to his mom and asked what should be done with a boy like that. And his mom said, Let him alone as long as he speaks the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh my like, god look at that point nurse take your apron off 
Mm-hmm. It just be like, look, it's a lot of rich people in this city. Mm-hmm. I'm finna go work somewhere else. I don't need this. Yeah. At yeah. that point. I'm not I would I would not be bought I'm already bossed by you. I would not be bossed by a five year old. It it seems like the thing that he needs is the thing that's done in some households when you talk back to your mom or your auntie yeah. and they chunk their uh their sandals at you. Yeah, yeah. Like you that's throw some that's the back. kind of yeah. Not yeah, nothing that hurts, but a sandal thrown at him. Yeah, just a nice <laughs> chocolate, just real quick. Yeah, yeah chocolate, exactly. Yeah, yeah just, you yeah. know, just let me remind you which one of us is the adult. That's the way my parents yeah. used to say, I'm just going to yeah. remind you which one of us is mm-hmm. the adult. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that should give you some idea as to the way the kid grew up seeing himself and other people. Um, we don't know very much about like his dad personally. There are a few yeah. details that I kind of find tantalizing. One of which is that as a preacher, he was eventually a, a, a vicar. Um, he was famous for never delivering a sermon longer than 10 minutes. Wow. Well, he was great. Actually, I'm not yeah. going to lie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Somebody grew up, grew up in, a, in a Baptist, you know, yeah. a black Baptist church. You talk about 10 mm-hmm. minutes. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Yeah. 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 That that part sounds cool. And the other thing, yeah. Cecil's biographer just drops this in the biography with no added context, probably because we don't have it, is that um, Cecil's father despised the law and raised his children to not respect the law and to abide by their own. Mor- he just hated he hated the idea of going to lawyers. He hated judges. He hated cops. And oh. we don't know anything about why. But that was just yeah, the thing they were raised with. <laughs> Yeah. A little conflicted about Cecil's daddy now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, wait I mean, a minute, okay. <laughs> Hold up. You know what I'm saying? Like, good money, yeah. you know, was able to keep his kids alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep the speeches short, hates the kept cops. Kept his speeches short and he hates the cops. <laughs> so I'm like, wait. Oh. And he All married right. a full-grown adult, you know? Yeah. Like, he ain't... He wasn't married. He wasn't. He wasn't at the middle school picking curls. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, he wasn't getting married to a 15 year old at age yeah, 36, like, which a lot of dudes did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Cecil's first school uh, was was a private school rather than a public school. And that means a different thing, actually. That means he didn't go to he didn't go to like Eton or one of the fancy schools. It uh-huh. means a different thing, I guess, in England in this period. Um, yeah. So he was always kind of insecure about the fact that he went to a uh, a private school and didn't get to go to one of the big fancy like he's, he didn't get to be an Etonian. You know, we talked about yeah. that in our our episodes on um, the Wonga coup like uh-huh. that. The, he didn't get to to get that early introduction into like the fancy part of the of the of the white British boys education. Um, so so that, yeah, uh, maybe that's why he mm-hmm. thinks he's like he's of modest. Maybe. That's yeah, why. They, yeah, his parents, I think, kept him out because his health wasn't great, although that's mm. even debated. There's a lot of yeah. like argument over whether or not he was a sickly kid, which I just don't care to get into because it's boring. Um, True. Yeah, he was studious and intelligent, um, and he's overwhelmingly described as having been very moody. His nurse claimed that he was never like a normal child. <laughs> One, Although the evidence she gives for this is also baffling because the okay. thing that she, she cites is that he only laughed when he liked which is like when else do you laugh well i mean that's (laughs) wait yeah yeah i don't understand what she was going it's just you get reminders reading through this that like oh yeah this is like a again a different world like i don't understand what the fuck these people are talking about half the time sounds like she's bitter that he didn't laugh at her joke yeah what she like to me it was like maybe you just not funny because like your first story yeah that's a warning sign from a kid but like the fact that he doesn't laugh when he doesn't want to laugh you can't really like yeah (laughs) you yeah yeah Yeah. well who does laugh when they don't want to laugh are you laughing at the light you don't learn that until you're an adult so yeah 
course he didn't laugh. I guess English yeah. kids are supposed to learn that early. I don't know. But for a little bit more context on Cecil as a boy, I'm going to read uh, a, a quote from The Founder, uh, which is okay. a biography about him. When vexed, he would hide in a dark corner under the staircase, not speaking for hours. He sometimes fled to the family summer home with a book, poring over it by the hour together, resenting imperiously any attempted intrusion. He was prone to strange fits of moodiness, some vague uneasiness of spirit whose source he was never able to properly communicate, unaware himself of whether it was melancholy or horror that seized him. Occasionally, the young Rhodes rocked himself to and fro and kept up a low croon which was almost a moan, a crooning that never shaped itself into articulate words. At such times, Miss Rhodes would go to her special son and, with her arms about him, she would beg him to explain the reason of his disquiet. But he never told her, locking himself then as later in a private, possibly solipsistic world. There were similar moments when he curled up under the dining room table, remaining there, invisible behind an overflowing tablecloth. Despite the frantic searching of servants, he sat underneath, dinnerless, through many a meal of his young years, hugging his knees yo he's sounds he's, autistic there, the some of that the, the moaning yeah. thing like i used to yeah. i used to d- teach special ed and like that is like um I, and i've heard a number of theories as to like why it's a thing but like yeah i i don't know like you can't diagnose a guy who died no. decades before like yeah obviously um yeah but it, it does sound like he was um he was, I don't know, like, I don't even like the term neurotypical uh, yeah. a lot. It sounds like he was, he definitely had some, um, there's something going on there. Yeah, that maybe they didn't I, have yeah, a I don't name. have a great understanding of. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't have a name for whatever that was. Well, yeah, and it and it's, that's a benefit for, yeah. like, being, seeing the world differently can allow yeah. you to see options others don't. And I, and I think kind of what you're, what, what this paragraph is getting at and what I've experienced with a number of, a number of the autistic folks that I worked with who would do, who would have kind of behave, yeah. coping behaviors like that, the moaning, yeah. is they're taking in like too much of the world. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're kind of overwhelmed by all of the sensory stimuli because their brain, for whatever, whatever ours, like uh, uh, other people, their brain maybe filters out more or something. Yeah. And maybe that's part of why Cecil was able to see some of the options he was able to see. Totally. I don't know. Like, let's, yeah, I don't want to psychoanalyze yeah. it too much. We can't psychoanalyze like, the dude, but that, yeah. but there is something to being able to have a coping mechanism that maybe the rest yeah. of us think are weird, but yeah. we don't, but we ain't got one. I bet you and if we it, had some coping mechanisms, it'd probably be a, a less, some less anger in us. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's so, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, and him it, able to like navigate a world uh, yeah. because his brain works a certain way, which we don't know, obviously is all. Yeah, it, it it just yeah. it does sound like what we can say from that paragraph is that he's he was he he felt overwhelmed a lot yeah. by reality as a little kid to an extent yeah. that was 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 unusual. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Now the author of that biography, Robert Rotberg, is very interested in developmental psychology, and he and he analyzes mm-hmm. Cecil repeatedly through that lens. And I think the book was written in '88, so there's not okay. a lot of he didn't. I think if it was written more recently, he probably he might have speculated more on some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. Um. But he's he's real into like some Freud and shit um Uh-oh. and he notes that first and only children tend to get the most attention while middle children learn better interpersonal skills mm-hmm. uh, and rotberg uh basically writes that cecil had elements of both of these things in his own upbringing he was the middle kid but he was also his mother's favorite and so he got special attention and he 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 theorizes that this kind of might explain how he grew up into the political animal he became because he was both kind of surrounded by a very competitive family and uh-huh. he learned how to do diplomacy as a result of that 
But he yeah. also grew up with this kind of limitless self-confidence that comes from being, you know, uh, the the most favored child. Yeah. So another major influence on the growing Cecil was the fact that his father was kind of a dick. Um, and as <laughs> Cecil later confided to a friend, quote, my father frequently, and I am now sure wisely, demolished many of my dreams as fantastical. But when I had rebuilt them on more practical lines, he was ready to listen again. He never failed to put his finger on the weak spots. And his criticism soon taught me to consider a question from every possible point of view. I don't know. Sounds a little bit dickish to me to like be tearing apart a kid's dreams all the time. Yeah. But Cecil clearly was grateful for it. So yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He somehow like read like read like a little history revisionism here, like looking back going, ah, I guess it was kind of cool that my dad was emotionally abusive and didn't let me imagine. Also, yeah. you just decided to stop doing the accent. Well, yeah, I'm not going to do it all the time, Sophie. I like to think that that your cat looks at you when you do those accents like, who is this man? I do enjoy a nice British accent. You're very good at it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I have a real racist Italian accent, too. Okay, Um, don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Uh, Okay. I only only do it when I'm cooking pizza. Um, Good. Which is fine. I'm (laughs) Italian. Yeah. But... (laughs) So, um, yeah, from an early age, Cecil's talents as a leader were evident. He loved to play soldiers, but he insisted on playing general. Uh, he was temperamental, and I find it noteworthy that the main people who reported on this later were not his actual family members, but the help, all of whom seemed to have stories about the fact that he was very easily angered. Oh, my um, God. So all of, like, the service workers kid. who know this kid say, like, he's he's fucking dick. <laughs> oh, my God, this kid. That's because yeah. they're... They, yeah. this, dude, now, now I get a better picture. It's like the servants are action figures. They're yeah. just... They're, exactly. they're living action figures to him. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... Uh, and again, one of the th- people... A lot of people who come up later, and we'll talk about this when we talk about all of the racism, because yeah. he gets defended a lot by people today by saying, like, well, we can't deny that he believed things that were racist, but it wasn't out of step with the attitudes of the time. Which, number one... I hate it when people bring that up because there were actually a bunch of dudes and ladies uh-huh. at the time who were like, hey, our society's racist. This is fucked up. It's like with slavery. There yeah. were a lot of abolitionists. Like, no, that was never a thing that was just like all taken for granted as as right. Like, it, it doesn't make it OK. But also like, yeah, the, the treating the help shitty. That was very common among the British yeah. upper crust. Yeah. Also doesn't mean he's not a dick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. When Cecil turned 16, he was more or less a man because, again, people didn't live all that long back then. Yeah. Um, so it was time for him to head to grammar school, which is a, a term for secondary school, um, but I think was kind of more like it, it was basically like he the normal thing to have done for a boy in his 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 um his situation would have been to get on the track to start going to university. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to have done that and go to someplace like he wanted to go to Oxford. That was always his dream. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to become a lawyer. Uh, but yeah, he, he didn't like, he, it, it was kind of like a situation where he wasn't a hundred percent certain about what he wanted to do. Uh-huh. And um, he wound up picking another option, which was that his brother Herbert had moved to South Africa and started a cotton farm. And his family kind of thought that he wasn't really ready for college and he couldn't, wasn't uh, mature enough to go to join the military or anything so like that. To work. Yeah. They wanted to harden him up. That's what yeah. you did if you were an upper class British family and you had a kid that you wanted to toughen up. You would send them to Africa. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. Just, it was like a. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 It, it, 
Yeah. And, and just knowing it's South Africa just even adds even yes. more. Yes. Just like, yeah. All right. And at this go. point, South Africa is not a political entity. No, it's the Cape, the Cape Colony. Yes. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little in a little more detail soon about like what the powers kind of in Southern Africa are at that point. Yeah. But yeah, Africa in this point for the British was seen as a place not where not just as a place where a white man could get rich because it was obviously that, but where a white boy could become a white man um, yeah. by ordering you know black African people to work for him, um, yeah. yeah, and surviving malaria. Uh, so oh, the man. primary motivating factor was probably Cecil's father, who saw his son as soft and an underachiever in school. Um, as Rotberg writes, despite the school prizes that Cecil had won, the vicar may have also had qualms about the thoroughness of his preparation in Greek and Latin. Furthermore, his father recognized that he was unfitted for a routine life in England. Sons of the sturdy Victorian middle class went overseas. They went to America and India. They were beginning to go out to Africa. So again, sturdy, sturdy middle class, sturdy middle class. That's what a great term. <laughs> Yeah. That's who builds the British Empire. You know, Word. it's not the yeah. it's not the wealthy people. Um, no. like they have they fund a lot of it. But if you're looking at like the people who actually conquer most of the land, it is these like these folks in Cecil's, these kind of the yeah. the upper classes, middle class is who yeah. actually goes out to prove themselves in these places. Yeah, it, it just I just wonder what it would like honestly feel like to really believe that like the world is your playground. Yeah, And no matter where I go, I'm at home because these are our colonies. So when you yeah. land in the Southern Cape, you're like, well, this is England. Yeah. You this land in England, India, you're like, well, it's England. England. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I it's mean, just, the, yeah. 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 There's, there's, an, there was, a, not anymore, uh, <laughs> but there was at one time when I was traveling the most, I, 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 I felt kind of similar to that having a U.S. passport. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you gold. could go anywhere and everybody like I can. I remember times in like Central America where they were just, I'd be in towns where there was a whole police force just to keep just for the tourists. Like cops yeah. would like stop and give you rides and stuff to go get wow. to go to the next bar because it's like our job is to make sure that the white Americans who visit uh, have the best possible time because that's wow. an important part of our like it's. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel that to a small extent, you know, it's not the I same, do, but it, it's yeah, and it just both scenarios seem amazing yeah you know what i'm saying just yeah blissfully unfair but probably incredible yeah yeah very definitely unfair um yeah so uh yeah there's pretty persistent rumors that cecil's family sent him to africa because he was sick uh and that wandering around africa was like a medical treatment at the time like and you get that a lot in cecil's life he'll get ill huh. and they'll be like go to africa and then he'll get another kind of ill and they'll say oh you need to head back to england that was a lot of medicine was like <laughs> go where it's hot go where it's cold <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. um Wow. Rotberg, who I, I think is probably the most rigorous biographer of Cecil, thinks that this is untrue, that like okay. looking at letters between him and his family, there's no evidence that he was sick um, and that he probably his family mostly wanted him to go get hardened up and go make the family wealthier by taking other people's stuff. And yeah. his 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 family invested a lot of money in him. His aunt gave him two thousand pounds, which was like that's a that's, That's a years of worth of living yeah. comfortably at that point in time, yeah. um, which he could use to like fund whatever adventure struck his fancy. Um, uh -huh. So he again, 
he's he's his family he's never worried about money he always yeah. knows when he when he strikes out to africa number one i have a giant pile of cash and no matter what i do my family will send more yeah this is an understanding he has yeah so he lands in africa in 1870 and at the time southern africa was divided between several white colonies were like the major powers in the area mm-hmm. there was the british controlled cape colony which was roughly the size of texas when we call this a colony most modern nations are smaller than the cape colony like okay again fucking texas it's the yeah. size it's almost it's like it's europe. ginormous it's the yeah. size of europe basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's the orange free state which was a bunch of dutch weirdos who really hated the brits uh-huh. um these are like the boers uh or mm-hmm. the afrikaners uh and yeah, there's the transvaal which is also which it's run by even weirder dutchmen and it was essentially yeah. a theocracy at this point yeah that's um, the and these are also Kuiper boers War. yeah exactly yeah. so uh between these white people controlled lands a lot of southern africa was still independent and controlled by people like the sotho the Nama, the Herero, uh, mm. I think the Basuto was one of them, uh, the Nikembe, um, yeah, or in the Keke, something. Yeah, w- w- we'll get to them later. I'm the not, African I'm not, tribes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. these, there's, there's still, th- there are still some very like the. Um, the Matabale, I think, is one of them. Are, mm-hmm. are very have a lot of power and still control a yeah. sizable chunk of land. Yeah, I was like, I know, I know a little bit just because of my Black Panther father, and then yeah. um, being. I like I I perform in South Africa at least once a year, except for this year. But like, yeah, so like the Zulu region down south, yes. you know, they're obviously very still very tribal. But like the the power that they wielded among even surrounding tribes was like, yeah, it was undeniable. Yeah, and their interaction yeah. with the uh, with the colonizers was like super crazy. Like you know the whole Shaka Zulu story. Yeah, yeah, anyway. the the Zulu yeah. wars and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is which is happening in this period. Like this yeah. is this is exactly this is the, the Zulu, period where yeah. also the Zulu wars are happening. Yeah, um, which are you know there's there's a there's a phrase that sums up all of the wars between the English uh, and and the Boers and. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the African tribes at this point, and it's yeah. it's a, a phrase that was come up with by a British poet, and I believe the poem was kind of critical of of mm-hmm. imperialism. But the phrase is, "Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not," which is yeah. like the Maxim gun's the first heavy machine gun. Yeah, and that, yeah, yeah. That's all the wars is at the end of the day. Yeah, a few hundred yeah. white troops, thousands of African troops, but the white people have heavy machine guns. Yeah, the shield is yep. still stretched like leopard yeah. skin. That's still their shield, yeah. no matter how a, trained you are. Yeah, yeah. and a, a lot of these African tribes, they're fighting with rifles still, but it's one, th- they have antique rifles and the white people yeah. have machine guns. So it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't fucking yeah. matter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert, Robert, you know what does well, matter? You know who else has machine guns? No. No, no that's not. That's not where I mean, probably, knives. right? No. Yeah. Knives probably have somewhere guns. in their room. Yeah. Um... That was trash. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if people have learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You think, what's the catch? But there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. 
Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/behind. That's mintmobile.com/behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/behind. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, we're back. So, uh, Cecil has just landed in Africa, uh, Mm -hmm. Southern Africa, in the Cape Colony. And the first thing he learns after setting foot on the continent um, is that the cotton he'd he'd gone there to grow cotton because his brother has this cotton farm um yeah. and this is a period where cotton's price has temporarily skyrocketed because the u.s has a civil war and mm-hmm. sherman burns all of the cotton fields and yeah. stuff uh yeah. so there's a period it was it was for the longest time not profitable for anyone but people who lived in the south of the united states to grow cotton because it's just the yeah. best region to grow it in and they were producing so much of it that there yeah. was no point in anyone else growing it there's this brief cotton boom in this period in like the 1870s and it doesn't last long but it's kind of at its height when he lands in Africa. But as soon as he gets to Africa, he starts talking with people and he learns that cotton... He, he hears about essentially a, a boom product that he finds a lot more exciting than cotton. Diamonds. Um, oh. Yeah. So... Yeah. 
Yes, diamonds. And he he starts talking like with, as soon as he lands, he meets a guy who just discovered a massive diamond mine in Southern Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and his brother actually doesn't show up to meet him. He leaves him a note because he was scoping out diamond fields when Cecil landed um, and yeah, had also yeah. like kind of moved on from the cotton. These are all these are all speculators, right? Like they're yeah. they're they're boom chasers. It's the same basic thing going on in Africa in this period, in Southern Africa in this period, as was going on in, in California, you know, yeah. with the gold rush and gold. shit. Yeah. Yeah. So Cecil fell in love with the geography of Africa at once. Um, and when I say he fell in love with it, I, I, I want to be really, I like, he didn't fall in love with Africa. He fell in love with the land in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a possessive love, and it did not include its the people there. Um, and that's a, a long-term sort of uh, thing, thing with Cecil. Yeah. Yeah. Having spent a decent amount of time in Africa, there is, and I I say this in all honesty, there is something magical there. And then just, and also the idea that like inside of the ground somewhere in Africa, I mean, the the land just produces everything. Yeah. It's just like, it's all of it is there. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's massive. It holds it's so much. It's yeah. so much bigger. Like our maps do us a disservice. Do it a yeah. disservice. Yeah. Um. Because again, like one of the colonies in Southern Africa is the size of Texas, and there's a yeah. bunch of other shit there still. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can fit so all big. the other land yeah. in the world in Africa. Yeah. yeah. It's huge. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm gonna read a paragraph that is uh, something that that Cecil wrote about kind of the native peoples in Africa after he first arrived there. So this is one of his first impressions. Uh, And the the term he uses here, I don't know. I I didn't decide, like, I don't, I don't, I I don't norm, I don't read out like slurs if I can avoid it. I also don't want to say the K word, but it's, it's the, it's that, it's that word in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. South Africa's version of the N word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and at this point, I should state, they use both that word and the N word interchangeably. Yeah. And they are, they are slurs, but they're not using them as slurs because to them, this is just what you call these people. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not. Yeah. So which yeah, is time a, and a, language is crazy and yeah. alive. Yeah. Yeah. So, totally. uh, the the people here shock your modesty. Many of them have nothing on, excepting a band round the middle. They are fine-looking men and carry themselves very erect. They all take snuff and carry their snuff boxes in a hole bored through their ears. They also pay great attention to their hair and carry porcupine quills in it, with which they dress it. You often see them sitting down in groups, dressing each other's hair and picking the fleas out. Um, and then he talks about how he doesn't think they smell very good. Um, and yeah. he's very judgmental. Um, just a real judgmental dude. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's that's Cecil's first impression of these people, and he eventually uh, receives a letter that his brother has sent him that included twenty dollars and a crude ma- map to the cotton farm. So he heads to the cotton farm, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, pretty soon after he arrives there, the price of cotton falls. Um, but he he spends some time as a cotton farmer, and, okay. and he's not really interested in cotton. He really wants to get into diamonds, but his family keeps writing him letters, basically saying, "Don't like stay stay on the cotton path. This is safe. Like this is a good yeah. investment. Diamonds are risky, and that's kind of um you know the, the his first year or so in in Africa is him uh-huh. constantly getting this like this flood of information about all the diamonds people are finding in different parts of Southern Africa, and it makes his he he writes that it makes his mouth water. Yeah. Um, this might be and, a dumb uh, question, but why why yeah. is his family so involved? 
but this is like that's what they do. This is what I think that's pretty standard for an upper crust family at the time. Like this, the, like a child is also an investment, and he yeah. reflects on the family. And you, you're you're putting a lot of money into him to send him there. You want him to do things that will will provide a return. I guess yeah. seems like a you're lot. still building. Yeah, you're building the empire. Remember, they're like yeah middle rich. Yeah, so sure. you got to build the empire. Yeah, yeah, and empires are built by people who are building private empires for themselves, yeah. right? Like that's what makes yeah. it doable. You know, it's the Eric Prince sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they warn him away from this path, but he keeps he keeps like hearing all these stories. Like, there's he he, he reads a story about how a, an African man found a diamond uh, and traded it for a roll of tobacco to a white man, and the white guy sold it for eight hundred pounds. Um, his brother finds a couple of diamonds because he's always going off to go diamond finding. So Rhodes just keeps getting his, like he's got this hunger. He does describe it as like a physical hunger to go out and find diamonds. Um, Now, the first diamond had been discovered in South Africa three years earlier. In 1869, Mm. a black farm employee had found an enormous 88 carat diamond, the star of Africa. And uh, I think this is neat. So the diamonds were first found, as as far as we can tell in human history, um, by people in southern india and uh-huh. carrots are what you you kind of measure diamonds by because those people back in like 700 bc um would weigh a diamond next to carob seeds and that's why oh. it's called carrots is like the, the the number of carob seeds that it takes to like weigh a diamond like that's where that word came from we don't use carob seeds anymore but like anyway no. i just thought that was neat that's i super learned that while i was researching this yeah and it's not carrots like every kid thinks no, no, yeah. no. Uh, it's like carob seeds. So he yeah. was paid, uh, the, the black man who finds this star of Africa, this massive diamond. Yeah, he, he was paid 500 sheep, 10 oxen, and a horse for it. Which actually, like, if you're looking at kind of, like, Africans who find diamonds and sell them to white people, that's yeah. not a bad price. That's a lot nah. of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nah, yeah. he came up off he something came he just up. found in the ground. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, the star, though, did eventually sell for 25,000 pounds, which is Sheesh. like, you're very wealthy if you've yeah. got access to that kind yeah. of money in, in, in this period of time. Um, it's about the equivalent of four million modern dollars. I was going to um, say, yeah, no, that's, that's, some, yeah. that's some money. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this does bring me to an interesting, uh, the fact that this guy, this farm worker who sold it, I mean, got paid reasonably, nothing like close to what it finally sold for, but got paid pretty good, does yeah. bring me to a point about Southern Africa in this period that is important to state. It was less racist than it became. Hmm. This is actually, hmm. it, it actually started out as a much less racist as a colony, then it turned into. And the guy we're talking about today is part of why it made that turn. So obviously the British were outrageous bigots. Um, Of course. And everybody in this period, every English person in this period in the colony is tossing around the N-word like it's going out of style. But the Cape Town colony was run under British law. And the British had a a whole bee in their bonnet in this period about the rights of men. And British law held, in theory at least, that all men, even black men, were equal. Um, and this was this was something that was enshrined in their in their legal yeah. codes in a way that it was not in the United States. Yeah. Um, 
this was a principle. Um, it was not like a civil right in the way that we conceive of it, uh-huh. um, but it was a principle that was abided by. And so while, while black men were very much second class citizens in the eyes of the white people who lived there, they still theoretically enjoyed full rights. If they owned property, they could vote. Segregation was not a matter of law. Um, yeah. And th- this is within kind of the core of the Cape Colony. And one of the things you'll see is that like within the core of the colony, they hold pretty strictly to these these things that they consider proud traditions of of the British Empire, and the further out you get from it in the areas where they're actually extracting resources, the less and less those legal niceties apply, right? Okay, okay. Um, but within yeah. the center of the colony, they make at least an effort at that. And there are, you know, to to their credit, you will find lawmakers who, when there are other people who are talking about, like, restricting the rights of, of black Africans, there uh-huh. are lawmakers in the colonies who get very angry about that, white lawmakers. So there yeah. is, this is part of why you can condemn people like Cecil, is there are white men at this time who are like, that's not right. Like, the uh, all men should be equal and they have to be treated that way under the law. And, like, you okay. are you are developing a separate legal code for them. Which is just worth noting that this is not when we talk about the racism of colonialism. I do think we often we often make it out to be something that everyone just thought was fine. And they didn't. Yeah. A lot of people pushed back. A lot of white people pushed back against it. It's part of why you can condemn the ones who didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I would even argue that like that's like. Yeah. Things don't things don't start at the end, you know. Yeah. And that I mean, the same happened in America. Like there couldn't. Without the without the work of you know non racist white people, yeah, we probably couldn't have gotten where we've gotten so far. Anyway, yeah, and, yeah. and it, 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 I think for this, it's because they don't stop anything from happening in the Cape Colony, right? Yeah. Like it, it, the 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 racism is is enshrined into law despite their yeah. objections. But the fact that people objected is important, I think, for for, for sure. condemning the ones who were who, who pushed for the racism, including Cecil. For so, sure. Um, at this point in our story, though, Cecil's just a 17-year-old boy learning how to become a cotton farmer. Um, okay. Or rather, he was learning how to command the Zulu laborers who actually yeah. did the work on his farm. <laughs> yeah. Learn how to run a farm, yeah. not how yeah. to farm. Yeah. Now, it seems fair to say from the context that Cecil was not an excessively hateful racist in his personal interactions with the natives. Mm. Um, But he was in his bones a capitalist, and he was very frustrated by the fact that these people were not. Their way of life did not gel well with capitalism. Uh, He wrote, for though there are any amount of, he uses that K word out here, they are such independent fellows that the greater part of them won't work. Their daily food is mealy, maize porridge. They grow their own mealies, and the only thing they ha- must have is money for their hut tax, which is very light. And he considers this a problem, that all they, they're like, oh, I grow my own food, I don't really need money, so I'm not going to work that much, because I don't I don't want much. I'm happy just growing my own food yeah. and living. I, I don't want to like labor for someone else all the time. And he's like, this is a problem. <laughs> it's actually, yeah. Sounds kind of good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, yeah. that, that actually sounds like an ideal life. That sounds pretty great. <laughs> I have what I need. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, you know, he's recognizing these people are not going to be ideal citizens uh-huh. um, of, of, 
of global capitalism, which isn't a thing at this point, but is is being born. And Cecil's yeah. one of the people who first kind of sees what's going to be born. Um, and he wants to build, he, he becomes enthralled with the idea of building a massive network of trade throughout Africa and the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, so that products can move and go because he loves, he, he in his bones, he loves capitalism. Yeah. That's, and yeah. So yeah. uh, he was unique uh, among the white men in his area for being willing to lend his black workers money. Um, okay. He and his brother both believed strongly that Africans were almost incapable of lying. Um, and that so like you could trust them with money. He actually wow. said that uh, he, he would prefer to loan them money than to like have money in the Bank of England because the Bank of England was a less trustworthy institution. So like that's something. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's yeah. that's the that's the off balance racism where you like, dang, I don't, ah, yeah, I'm on, I, I feel so weird. Yeah, I, I've heard some descriptions that his workers were basically slaves, and it does seem like later on, as the story develops, it became that way. Yeah, that, that does happen to the people who work for him, but that doesn't appear to have been the case in this period. Uh, okay. In fact, in this period, Cecil probably could be described as one of the better white men in the Cape Colony to the 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 black people who worked for him yeah. um he Still was also one of like the better insult to me <laughs> yeah i mean it's not a yeah. it's not a compliment i it's i'm just no. trying to make sure there's proper context of this guy's journey yeah. um he was also one of the better cotton farm managers but he didn't uh -huh. really he never really liked farming cotton um he couldn't stop thinking about diamonds and in 1871 a huge field of diamonds the biggest diamond find in in the world was found near a town now called kimberly um mm -hmm. and at the time kimberly was part of what was called greca land um which is an independent territory founded by a mix of some members of different african tribes a lot of former slaves but uh -huh. also groups of kind of disaffected white men. Like it's actually a very multicultural group of Whoa. people who all kind of reject what's going on in the, the colonies of Africa and move to this place in the middle of nowhere, um, dusty, unfertile land together so that they could be kind of free. Of, so of it's all almost like bullshit. an autonomous zone. Yeah. I mean, it, it was chance. still like they had, I think they had kind of like, there was like a, like a, yeah, I, I, their leadership structure was 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 you know somewhat horizontal, but like yeah, it was a lot uh -huh. of people who were kind of rejecting what was being done elsewhere in Africa at the time and wanted to get away from it. Um, huh. And so yeah, that's the Greekas, and it's a very I'm not going to do that whole story justice. It's worth noting as we tell the rest of the story. You, from what I've read, you will not find this story in South African history books. Greeka land's been pretty much written out of the okay. written out of the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to quote next from an article in the History News Network. Then in June 1871, a white prospector announced the discovery of an 83.5 carat uh, diamond at the place now known as Kimberley. So named after Earl Kimberley, the British Secretary of State for the Colonies. Okay. This site of the discovery just happened to be within Greeka territory. But fortune hunters never did bother to raise any questions with the Greekas as to the ownership of the mining rights. Just a few days earlier, the British Colonial Secretary in a dispatch dated May 18, 1871, had already authorized the British High Commissioner in Cape Town to extend the British territory in South Africa by annexing Greca land. It seems unlikely that the close timing of these two events was purely coincidental. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, so, oh, there's diamonds. I guess this is ours now. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and the Kimberly Discovery came at a fateful time. Diamonds in South Africa then were like gold in California again. So thousands of prospectors would just swarm any chunk of land that seems like it might hold wealth. And just before the Discovery had come, there'd been a number of false finds. Generally, people would like find a couple of diamonds in like an alluvial plain, which is like Uh land around a river. um, And people would swarm there, but there wouldn't actually be nearly as many diamonds as they'd anticipated. So that had happened a few times. So a lot of these guys were very desperate. So once diamonds are found in Kimberly, and it's clear that this is a real find. Tens of thousands of desperate miners start swarming yeah. in to tear the whole, this big mountain that is the find apart. Well, not mountain, like a hill, but yeah, like yeah, a large yeah. hill. Um, and yeah, Greek land was brushed out of existence so that these guys could get rich. Uh, quote from the History News Network. Greek leader Nicholas Waterboer, uh, through a legal advocate, had during all this time been importuning the British colonial authorities at the Cape to respect Greek land's sovereign independence and its ownership of the land upon which the diamond field was situated. To no avail. Finally, in May 1878, an armed rebellion broke out. The lightly armed Greekas were no match for colonial troops armed with not. cannon and breech-loading rifles. A massacre ensued. With the colonial forces suffering only nine fatalities. It signaled the beginning of the end for the Greek nation. Most of the survivors migrated several hundred miles to the northwest, settling ultimately in southwest Africa, now Namibia. Mm. So, Greek is, you know, not a great story for them. Um, So yeah, the men... What? Yeah, there's just like an entire... It's an entire like... Like there's, yeah, there's... They're just not in history books now. Like that's no. Where would they the be? Idea, they didn't win. Yeah. 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 It's so crazy that like. Yeah. I guess they didn't exist. But no, they totally existed. But now they're no, no. Yeah. Not no more. Not no yep. more. So, uh, yeah. Um, the men who would come to work the Kimberley find were also Africans, um, but they they were not people who had lived in the Greek territory previously. They were uh-huh. a different group of Africans who had been dispossessed by the colonial greed of the Boers. Most of them were refugees from areas around the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. They'd been pastoral nomads who'd had their lands seized by military force. Uh, they were destitute, starving, and homeless. And so a lot of these guys had no choice but to work the diamond mines because otherwise they were going yeah. to starve to death. Yeah. Quote, fortune hunters from all over Southern Africa and from Europe, America, and Australia fought over claims, while at the same time remaining united in the common purpose of being the masters of black labor. 700 individual claims or plots of ground containing a little more than 893 square feet were marked off and taken possession of. 30,000 black laborers toiled away in that confined space, but were themselves prohibited from owning claims or dealing in diamonds. They were subjected to constant body searches and restricted to their huts and tents by nighttime curfew. Any dark-skinned person in the vicinity who could not prove he was employed as a servant or laborer was declared a vagrant and subject to flogging. So, you know. Yeah. 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 I'm not a bring, new story. Yeah. Not a new story. Yeah. Yeah. Just even, you know, there are places in Central and South America, I'm bringing it back to coffee again, that sure. like the locals that, the farms that grow it and the people that like harvest the coffee they're legally not allowed to drink that. Like the the beans yes. are only for export. You know what I'm saying? And like, yeah, just it's like tale as old as time, dog. Like this day land. Yep. I, I can definitely yeah. say that one radicalizing moment for me was during the time I spent in Guatemala hanging out with like some native Guatemalans in their homes and being given instant coffee. 
Yeah, in an area surrounded by and being like, oh, uh, <laughs> wait, is this? A, we're on a coffee yeah. farm. Like, there's there's all of the world's coffee comes from here, basically. Right here. Like, yeah. What is yeah. happening? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why are yeah. we drinking Nescafe? <laughs> Why do we? Does not compute. Oh, yeah. It's because my country has all the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, um, yeah, you walk into their village like, hey guys, I got this single origin Guatemalan. You yeah, guys want to try it? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, we grew that right here. Yeah, it comes from here. We don't get that. <laughs> we can't drink it though. Yeah. And uh, so, speaking uh, of capitalism, Robert. You know what will let... Hmm, no. Okay. Well, you know let's what's just go to ads. S- yeah. I don't know, <laughs> I'm no help. Yeah. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co lead in the six part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learned something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. Ah, oh, those were some good ads. Let me tell you something. Yep. I'm about to use all those promo codes. I love promo codes because and, I love promotions. And it will put food on y'all's table. I love food on my table. Yep. 
So while the Greek territory had been annexed by the Cape Colony, it did not benefit from the same enlightened legal system as the rest of the colony, because again, it's on the periphery. And while it's important for us in the cities to abide by these these laws that we all think are very, very nice, once we get out to where the money's made, people oh, stop talking man. about the rights of man, you know? Because yeah. <laughs> ah, there's money yeah, to be yeah, made. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's the same thing as how the United States, our, our whole lives, talks a good game about the rights of man, but also uh, fundamentally could not exist in the same fashion if a large number of its uh, critical products were not made in areas without any sort of labor laws. Yeah, it's only, yeah. it wouldn't work. Yep. It yeah, we just... We've dis- we've diffused the responsibility by making those be an independent countries now. Yes. yes. So Cecil Rhodes was one of the very first white men to rush uh, toward, like, he, he just kind of abandons the cotton farm. And he goes to what would turn out to be one of the world's largest diamond mines, the Kimberley yeah. Find. And okay. at the time, the hill where the mine was centered had a Dutch name, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. No. Like, I, I, I don't even know how to begin pronouncing it wrong, is how... Is just okay. yeah. I don't even know um, how to say this wrong. All <laughs> right, yes, um, yeah. He was 19 when he traveled there to help his older brother who'd bought a couple of claims. Um, yeah. And Rhodes immediately brought his considerable gifts to bear because he's a great organizer. He's great at maximizing productivity. He's one of these people who can. Um, who can just like look at a bunch of people working at a task and see uh-huh. ways in which to make it more efficient. He's got that Henry Ford thing going on. I yeah. like it. Um, he says you can't. I was going to say, yeah. man, you know, is the worst thing in the world is to be like in some sort of uh, relationship with a person that's good at those things. Yeah. Because that's some like it's just like, man, can you just can you just let me put my shoes where they go? Yeah. Like, can, <laughs> I mean, you're probably right, but like. Damn, man. Like, I don't want to think about it. Like, I just don't want to. Oh, my <laughs> yeah. God, dog. I, yeah. I, when, we, when I first got married, I remember I, I come back from a show. Like, I'd be gone two days. All of a sudden, the drawer that used to have the knives and forks, now it's towels in. And I'm like, what? am I crazy? Because she didn't figure out a better way for our kitchen to function. And just, uh, man, can you just, okay. I, I don't have an argument as to why. This is not a, it's actually a better idea, but God. <sighs> yeah. You married up. It's really annoying. Nice job. I did. I mean, I mean, I really did. It's, she's much more efficient, but sometimes like you're getting all, you know, Rhodesia on me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I just think of all the times Robert can't find things and then mm-hmm. we start things late because is- he can't find things. I have started the rebellion against capitalism early in my own life by refusing to ever know what I'm doing or have a plan. And and you know what? It works out fine. This is one of the most successful podcasts in the world. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you. See, you don't need capitalism. Yeah. As long as you have products and services. Yes, you so, do. Is uh, that how that yeah. works? He was, yeah, he's a born entrepreneur. He creates a bunch of side hustles in order to basically make additional cash to fund the expansion of their mind, to buy other yeah. claims. Uh, the probably most successful of these was he bought an ice machine so he could sell ice cream during the vicious summer months in Southern Africa. Oh, my God. This yeah, guy so he, is brilliant. Yeah, I no, hate this dude smart, so yeah. much. But yeah. that's brilliant. No, you God, show up in like the, the fucking middle of like the, the dead middle of like like Southern Africa, like people working in the summer on a mine and you're like, you know, it'll do well here is a fucking ice machine. <laughs> Yo, <laughs> yeah. do you, you remember, you remember, uh, 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 early like 2000, you know, 
10, 11, earlier this decade, like when the one-to-one model was like all, like the Tom's model, right? Was all the, yeah, all the, yeah. all the rage. I saw this video, it was going around. I did, it was hilarious. I think those dudes make commercials now, but like they were totally dressed like the guy that started Tom's and they were uh, supposed to be in Africa doing this one-to-one thing. And he says, you know, I never forget it, man. I, ha- I had this idea where... um I was out in Africa, we were on a missions trip, and I just thought to myself, where can I get a smoothie? And he goes, <laughs> and he's like, I never forget it. The, 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 the tribe said, what's a smoothie? And he was like, and that's when I knew. We want to do one-to-one smoothie machines. So their whole business model was (laughs) if you buy a smoothie machine, they will provide one for a tribe in Africa. (laughs) I mean, I kind of love the idea of like hunter-gatherers, but with a smoothie machine because like everybody enjoys a smoothie. All all you need is like ice, milk, and running water. I'm sure they can get that, right? Man, yeah, they're, they're good, right? Yeah. Just, They'll figure they're it out. selling yeah. smoothie machines, and they did sh- totally shot it like one of those commercials where, like, you know, you got this white lady, this really nice white person handing yeah. the smoothie to like the smiling African, and then the machine, the guy, little African boy is holding it like, what do I? Is <laughs> one kid just dragging it by the power cord, right? Just do the thing. They're putting rocks on the inside. Like, what do I do with this, right? But anyway, that's what they reminded me of. But anyway, hey, this fool's brilliant. Sell ice cream. Sell ice cream. Yeah. Yes. Sell ice cream. Um, smart, smart guy. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, now, when he first arrived at Kimberly, he described the site of this this hill that's because, like is the center of the mining claim as looking like a giant anthill covered in thousands of scurrying black shapes. And he predicted, and this turned out to be very accurate, that one day the hill would be completely dug away and replaced by a giant hole in the earth itself. And he yeah. was completely right about this. Yeah. Um, if you go to Kimberly today, you can go visit the big hole, which... Many suggest, really? it's not confirmed, but many suggest is the largest pit ever dug by human hands. And if you look up the photos of this, it's astonishing. It is That's it is a crazy. really big hole. Yeah. That's crazy. Like, I didn't know you could still go. Man, okay. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, because they just dug, they dug so deep into the ground to get all the diamonds, and then they, there's this giant hole. Nobody's yeah. going to fill it up. What are you going to do? Right? Yeah, what are yeah. you going to do after? Yeah. Now we have a hole in our town. Yeah. Hey, guys. Hey, now, hey, look. Capitalism. Hey, come see the hole. Come see we the fucking big, hole. We dug a big yeah. hole. I'm trying to we do dug your, a hole. Your, Let's monetize it. Yeah, you're you're I'm trying to do your sometime your old timey yeah. like newspaper guy voice. Come see the hole. I can't do it, dude. The natives could never have dug in a hole this big. Like, look at this <laughs> hole. Only white men could make a hole this big. <laughs> That's it. There it is. <laughs> so this, the year after Cecil arrived, the population of diggers in, in Kimberley swelled to as many as about 50,000. And at first, most of them operated independent claims, finding diamonds, because it, it required nothing more than hand tools, right? You were just kind of digging and like running water through it with oil. And I don't know. It's, yeah. a, it's a process, but it's pretty simple and it didn't require heavy equipment. Yeah. Um, but as these claims were found more profitable and as the digging got deeper, eventually like you started turning it into a big hole. And that yeah. becomes too much of a process for small independent diggers to be a part of so things start getting consolidated um and people start abandoning it too because there's a period when you're mining diamonds where you strip away like the surface level and it looks like you're done and cecil and a number of other like smarter well i guess like just more intuitive guys understood that no no no, there's going to be more diamonds underneath that but we need to be we need to build larger companies to buy larger equipment to go deeper and extract those um so he starts 
investing his money into buying up individual mines and adding them to he and Herbert's claims. And the process started slowly. It took years and years and years. Um, and it was a time that Cecil would remember fondly, this like 16, 17 year period where he's kind of building the foundation yeah. of what would become his empire. Um, in 1872, when he's about a year into this process, um, he's a very happy guy. His only frustration yeah. came from the fact that he wasn't able to go back to Oxford. Uh, as Rotberg writes, quote, Rhodes may have continued dreaming of a university education and of life as a professional, probably a barrister, but these would have been dreams with utilitarian motives. For the moment, he was content to have land of your own, horses of your own, and shooting when you like, and a lot of black, in words, to do what you like with, apart yeah. from the fact of making money. So that's ah, his attitude. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And again, the, 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 the ease with which he could kind of talk about how happy he was probably had something to do with the fact that his parents were backing him um, and would continue to do it. Uh, so he never had to like, he he had this, the, he had a cushion, you know, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, he had a cushion. Form, where it's yeah. like, it's really not a risk because if all else fails, you could just go back to, you just go back to England. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And, and metaphorically and quite literally just leave a hole in Africa and just, yeah. and just, you just go back home like, well, it was fun. I guess it didn't, you know, whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and that like knowing that it's like, it makes the, the it's, it's you gamify, like it's a video game now. So yeah. it's like, this is fun building an empire, building an industry. It's fun because yeah. if it, if it fails, it's just like, oh, it's like a video game. Just hit the reset button and start over. Don't save it. You know what I mean? And just start over. Yeah, like the thing that you like, I enjoy. I don't know. Maybe I don't know if this impulse is is coded in uh, white dudes socially, uh, mm -hmm. or if or if there's there's something deeper to it. But like the only video games that I play are games where you you build an empire, you you like build uh -huh. like cities or, or countries, and you like you know it, it, it's all about expansion yeah. and all of that stuff. Um, and I you know I, I I feel that impulse, and I get to play video games about it. Uh, I suspect if I'd been raised in Cecil's time in the culture he did, I probably would have done some some fucking imperialism. Um, probably, man. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, who could blame you? You know, because you could. But I yeah. do think um, yep. I find, and I mean, you've joked about it a few times about like starting a cult, you know, and the first time I heard you quote it, thought, talk about it, I thought to myself, I have imagined often building a culture from scratch and I'm like, yeah. well, I mean, that's what it is. And I'm like, I guess essentially a cult is just a small culture. And in my head, I'm like imagining the thing and making it up would be so much more fun than running it. You know, so when I see dudes like like this, that's like, yo, no, let's figure out how to do this. Consolidate the thing, do the thing. And it's like, I start, okay, we did it. But now you got to maintain it. Then you're like, damn, that's a drag. You know, well, let me go start another one. You know, and then you start another business. And then you go, because because the building the thing's fun. So I just think about that. Like, even if I was going to, you know, I, I would love to just like, you know, if I'm, everybody on Tuesday nights, we sit in a circle and you have to drink uh you know, green tea specifically only with your left hand at 5.42 p.m. That's the rule in our cult. And I just yeah. think that like making up stuff like that just seems fun, you yeah, know? So absolutely. in him, yeah, figuring out the best way to 
make this thing work and then shoot 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 messages back to his brothers and his family like suck it i'm living out here y'all sent me out here because you thought i couldn't do it check this out i'm winning you know i could see the psychology developing again yeah yep 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 um i get you know and this is kind of one where i land on like thank god for video games um, yes you know but also like I don't know, like, this is something I wrestle with. Like, if I can be completely honest with you, like, part of why I moved out to the West is I want to own land. I want yeah. to buy a, I want to buy a chunk of land that, that feels wild to me and get to uh-huh. live on it and roam around. Yeah. And there's certainly conversations to be had about how ethical that is. Um, yeah. It's a powerful desire and it's coded in me, as is, as is finding romance in things that I know are not romantic. Like the, yeah. like, like, like the cowboy or like the age yeah. of exploration, yeah. um, which is like, I was reading those books when I was like five years old and, you know, yeah. I, I've gone out of my way to educate myself about the reality, but yeah. you, you never quite fully break that spell. Nah. Yeah. You can't help but be a like, and product's not the right word, but, but yeah, like you are influenced by the era you're in and mm-hmm. You can't not be what you are. So, yeah, no, nah, I feel you. I think about that when we talk about reparations with black people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, hey, where's our 40 acres and a mule? And you turn right over to your indigenous friend that goes like, <laughs> wait, they finna give you land that's not theirs? Like, you know what I'm saying? So you're like, ah. Yeah. 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 Dang. Yeah. Know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And there's a, I don't know, there's a good conversation to be had in, um, condemning things that are bad like imperialism and also understanding the uh, the extent to which we're all products of yes. this system yes. so that we can have forgiveness for each other when people realize they've been wrong you know dude collect yeah. offering that's that was yeah. that was the sermon right there yeah. time to collect offering that was good all right so in 1873 he returned to Britain or England or whatever. People always yell at me for calling it one or the other. Uh, uh-huh. His purpose here was twofold <laughs> to take care of his ailing mother uh, who died the next year. He was very sad and to return to his education. Uh, he applied to Oxford because a degree at Oxford would mark him out as an English man of distinction, uh, but mm-hmm. he failed the entrance exam. And so he had to ask a family friend who was a graduate to use his influence with the school to get Cecil admission. Again, here we always go. has help earning the things that he gets. Plan B, um, baby. Who says you yeah. can't? Plan B. I'm white. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So for most of the next decade, Cecil would switch between summer semesters at Oxford, and he takes some years off in between, it's not every year, and winters in Africa, uh, seeing Mm -hmm. to the expansion of what was becoming a mining empire. Mm -hmm. He initially funded his education by the money his dad had set aside for it, but as he and Herbert's business expanded, he was able to pay his own way through Oxford, and he was very proud of this. Um... He was not a good student, and he was regularly in trouble for failing to attend lectures and not doing the reading that he was ordered to do. Uh, It seems like most of his time at school was spent at fancy parties making connections. He was always careful to make sure everyone knew how wealthy he had become, generally by carrying a box of diamonds with him wherever he went. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) You imagine pulling up to the frat party with a box of diamonds? Yeah. I was like, I was just thinking this guy is so stereotypical white male privilege, but then you were like oh no 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 but also no 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 <laughs> let me let me dial this up a bit yeah there's like yo there are things that just like i like we just said 
being gracious with each other and understanding that we're all products of the same goulash, mm-hmm. there are parts yeah. of me that like deeply admires what he just explained right now. That like, what's the twenty twenty fo- equivalent though of showing I up mean, to a frat that, party with a box of diamonds? Like, I'm trying you, to flex. That's the biggest you flex. credit the flex. Yeah, that is the. <laughs> Greatest flex I've ever, dude. The yeah. fact that I have you walking like, around diamonds. I'm, yeah, I got walk. I play play with diamonds. I keep pocket just, diamonds. This like is yeah. pick up chicks diamonds. I don't you even need these diamonds. I don't even need these. I got a whole field of them in Africa for which I spend my winters because yeah. London is. It's has, cold out here. He has yeah. fuck you diamonds. Like it's yeah, yeah, he has fuck, fuck you diamonds. diamonds. There's a part of me that like and that you ain't got to really. I'm going to Oxford. Literally yeah. for the flex, because yeah. I don't have to care. It's like I just I, to brag about it, it's and like, I don't even do the work. I hate I him. Doing the work. I hate him. Like yeah, he he stands for everything that I hate, but also that's the, that's that style. You did I, I, it. This style. That's what I'm yeah. trying to say. Respect. This swag is just off my the first hook. year of teaching. I never forget yeah. this. My first year of teaching, there was this little, I taught 11th graders, which was crazy because I was like maybe four years older than him. But like uh, I. This kid, this was like eBay time, right? So this kid was selling these like paint guns on eBay, you know? And I remember being like, first of all, how do you know how to do this, number one? And number two, where do you keep them? He was like, oh, they, I never get them. They don't, I don't have them. I just, they don't come to me. I buy them and then sell them. And then this little dude would show up late because he was working the German stock market, 11th grader. And I was like, if this fool never turns in an assignment, I don't blame him. I don't blame you for not taking high school serious. Yeah, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, exactly. Like, he Why? knows, he he has this thing that you have to have to be truly successful within a society, which is knowing that all of the conventions of your society are bullshit. And yes. Cecil Rhodes knows that. Cecil Rhodes understands it. that it's all it's all a dumb bullshitty grift and like he he will he will refuse to do work and then his like his friends at school will be like the the dean's gonna kick like you're gonna get kicked out of school and he has a number of meetings with them and they they never do and he knows they're not (laughs) going to because they know that he's going to be extremely wealthy and powerful and they want to be able to brag that he's an alumni yeah so when he sits exactly so when i sit down in this meeting about you uh about to expel me i'm just gonna put my backpack down and just let a diamond roll oh you don't want a guy with a diamond mind yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, let yeah. you tell me. So tell me. So tell me how. Tell me how this goes. Yeah. I just try, oh, excuse me. Let me get my diamonds off your desk right here. Imagine his pickup lines. Like what? Yeah. Like how? Like well, he, we'll talk the, about his romantic life a little bit in a moment, Sophie. Okay. Oh, does he treat um, women really well? Is he just that an outstanding guy? Is that what I should be expecting? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't even think about women. Um, oh. he's, he's, he, again, he's, 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 he's gay. We'll, we'll be talking about this in a little bit, but yeah, he's not, oh. he has no interest in women. Love um, it. yeah. So that's a slight turn of events. All right. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about that in a bit. Cause it, yeah. it, there's some things to say about it. Um, okay. I don't want to, like a lot of people talk about it too much cause I okay. don't think it's that big of a, of an, of a thing. Uh, no. but uh-huh. we'll, there, there's some areas in which it impacts kind of other things that he does. I still want to so, know what his pickup lines were. Well, we'll talk about that too briefly. I mean, so, even if it's gay or straight, you walk yeah. into a party with some diamonds, cuz like, that you're just hey, playing nice around with, you. shaking them like dice, fool. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? 
So uh, once a classmate, and this is back to the story about his diamond box, uh, a classmate reported, quote, when he condescended to attend a lecture, with pr- which proved uninteresting to him, he pulled out his box and showed the gems to his friends. And then it was upset and diamonds were scattered on the floor. And the lecturer looked up asking what was the cause of the disturbance and received the reply, it is only Rhodes and his diamonds. Oh, God. Oh, I hate this guy. Can yeah. you imagine being the professor just looking at this like, yeah. oh, this little prick, you little prick. Yeah. Damn, one of those yeah. rocks is my year's salary. Yeah. yeah. He's probably like that guy, that guy that was viral on social media, the the guy who salts the meat. Do you remember that? Oh, Salt oh, yeah. Bay. Yeah, Salt, salt Bay. Bay. He was probably Diamond yeah. Bay. Just up like that. Yeah, that yeah. guy. That's who I, yep. Yes. So cool. let's talk a little bit about what it took for Cecil to get those diamonds. So okay. right before ethical? leaving for his first Super term ethical? at Oxford. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. None of it is at, ever. Uh, yeah. So right before he left for Oxford, uh, Cecil and her, his brother Herbert moved most of their operations to a new set of claims at a mine named De Beers. Uh huh. Yeah, that's where the story's going. So, if you want an exhaustive account of every blow and play, you can read Rotberg's uh, biography, The Founder. The short of it is that Cecil came to own the entire mine, and he didn't buy it all. In fact, he he convinced an, a number of investors, many of whom were like men in and around his age group, ambitious younger guys, to invest. And he had he's noted as having this superhuman ability to convince primarily other white dudes to work towards his vision. He's able to get people to buy into a vision and give him full control mm-hmm. of achieving it. That is okay. his gift. That's his his real talent. Because he's not using all of his own money for this. He's convincing other people to pay and let him run things. Freaking brilliant, dude. Yeah, and he's very good at that. Starting in the mid-1870s, he began collecting a group of mostly young men around him. Uh, and to these most trusted acolytes, he would reveal what had become his true goal, the creation of a secret society aimed at furthering the spread of the British Empire over the entire world. The first people he collected for this grand endeavor were co-investors in his mining operation, men with money and influence that he welded with the power of his dreams into what essentially functioned as a fanatically loyal board of directors for his business. They were so devoted to Rhodes and his goals that many in the Cape Colony began referring to these men as the Apostles. Wow. Yeah. In 1877, after just six years in business, Rhodes had accrued an estate worth about 10,000 pounds, which did not make him super rich, but he was very comfortable. And it was enough that he wrote his first will, which listed his wish that all his possessions go, quote, to and for the establishment, promotion, and development of a secret society. The true aim and object whereof would be for the extension of British rule throughout the world. Rhodes went on, went so far as to specify that he wanted the society to ensure the spread of British rule to, quote, the entire continent of Africa, the Holy Land, the Valley of the Euphrates, the islands of Cyprus and Candia, the whole of South America, the islands of the Pacific not heretofore possessed by Great Britain, the whole of the Malay Archipelago, the the seaboard of China and Japan, and the ultimate recovery of the United States as an integral part of the British Empire. Yo, yeah, I am so glad he added that last part because that's gotta be a that's gotta be a freaking thorn in your flesh. Yeah, he like, hates that the U.S. left the empire. Yeah, I can't believe we lost this. Yeah, yeah. 
He's very frustrated by that. So the very next year, in 1877, while he's at Oxford, Rhodes published what he called his Confession of Faith. Now, he picked that title because by this point, years of ruling over black African servants and workers and extracting the wealth of their homeland for his own benefit felt so right to him that he considered imperialism to be his religion. When he's Uh, saying confession of faith, he's literally saying, this is this is my God. This goal is my God. Um, So he opened the statement by noting that he did not care about marriage. He didn't care about having a family and he didn't even care about attaining personal wealth. The sole aim that interested him was the furtherance of the Anglo-Saxon race. Quote. uh I contend that we are the finest race in the world, and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. Just fancy those parts of the world that are at present inhabited by the most despicable specimens of human beings. What an alteration there would be if they were brought under the Anglo-Saxon influence. Look again at the extra employment of a new country added to our dominion gives. I contend that every acre added to our territory means in the future birth of some more of the English race who otherwise would not be brought into existence." He's a white supremacist. Yeah. 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 And a lot of people were, or you can talk about like, there's, again, I I don't want to like get too into the birth, uh, the invention of the white race, because that is a story I want to, I do want to tell at some point. Yeah, that needs its own thing. Yeah. But he is, he might be the first modern white supremacist. The first proud boy style white supremacist. Yeah. That, 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 yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that there's this, and it's crazy like how, you know, this is that intermingling. I would say like you don't see a lot of this stuff in Christian literature until about now where like this like intermingling of. Yeah, this is our mandate on the planet from our yeah. maker. Like we are we're helping. This is what God wants for us. You and, know what I'm saying? And, and- yeah. yeah, Cecil's modern defenders will often bring up like things he said about believing that you know black people are are, are inherently the same as white people. It's a cultural problem, and as uh-huh. as soon as they fully embrace Anglo-Saxon culture, culture then yeah. I think they deserve to be treated equally. And they'll say like, no, he wasn't racist. He had beliefs about like he thought that he, he wanted to. It was just a cultural thing for him, yeah. and and that is. That's why I say I think he might be the first that I've come across really, truly modern white supremacist. Because yeah, he's yeah, a white yeah. supremacist in the way that the Proud Boys are. Where, like, yeah. they've got black members. They've got, got Pacific Islanders. They have, have Latino members. But their whole thing is their Western chauvinists. Western, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They believe that the, the West is best. And that as long as you buy into that, it doesn't matter what color you are. And that's Cecil. That's yeah. Cecil Rhodes. Yeah. Yeah. And he's writing oh. this shit out in 1877. Yeah, and it's... Um, oh. When yeah, most we, racists are much cruder. You know? Yeah, and we're yeah, and we're still yeah. like suffering from those writings to this day anyway. Yes. Now, yeah. like all arch imperialists, Cecil attempted to justify his mad ambition on humanitarian grounds, lamenting that if the Empire had not lost the United States, it would have been able to stop the Crimean War by denying both sides money and arms. Oh, now, Crimea River. Yeah, it's, eh. yeah. Yeah, that was that was good. That was good. Amp, I appreciate amp. that. Yeah, what it really was is, yeah, again, naked white supremacy. Rhodes yeah. lamented that secret societies of the day, like the Masons, didn't direct their wealth and power towards a clear aim. 
Quote, why should we not form a secret society with but one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery yeah. of the United States and for the making of the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire? What a dream. But yet it is probable. It is possible. I once heard it argued by a fellow in my own college. I am sorry to own it by an Englishman that it was a good thing for us to have lost the United States. There are some subjects on which there can be no arguments. And to an Englishman, this is one of them. But even from an American's point of view, just picture what they have lost. Look at their government. Are not the frauds that yearly come before the public view a disgrace to any country, but especially theirs, which is the finest in the world? Ooh. Yeah. I mean, you're Duh. not wrong. All of our politicians have always been frauds. You get that correctly. But yeah. you had a king. Like, like come on, like, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, you're not, you're wrong, not wrong, but you can't say that. Yeah. yeah. You're not wrong, but yeah. you're wrong. You're not wrong, but you're not better either. Like, yeah. so go fuck yourself. Yeah. 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 It takes one to no one. Yeah. <laughs> Ass hat, you know. He went on to express a desire to see the entire continent of Africa not just under British rule, but filled with English settlers. Quote, yeah. Africa is still lying ready for us, and it is our duty to take it. It is our duty to seize every opportunity of acquiring more territory, and we should keep this one idea steadily before our eyes, that more territory means simply more of the Anglo-Saxon race, more of the best, the most human, most honorable race the world possesses. The most human. <laughs> the thing that I still can't get my wrap my brain around, especially from writings like this, I'm like, y'all ain't invented sewage. <laughs> yeah. You in there, yeah. Y'all still you still throwing human shit in the street and don't know why you sick. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like this how you finna tell me y'all so you carry smell things because you don't bathe. I'm like, why are you tell why do you think? I'll give this, in Cecil's defense, he was known, and it was odd in this period, that he bathed every day. Even okay. when he was on campaign in the woods, he had like yeah. a bath taken around with him that his black servants filled up for him and stuff. I mean, Because he had the him. wealth to bathe every day. He had the wealth yeah. to bathe. I'm like, yeah. have y'all have seen... Have you, have you seen everyone? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know the rest of y'all? Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the secret society Rhodes proposed sounds almost more like a precursor to the CIA, a handpicked group of ambitious and talented young men who would dedicate their whole lives to this cause. When he actually started inducting more men into this society, he tended to restrict his members from marrying and starting families so that they would have no priorities before the empire. And this is where we talk about Rhodes' sexuality, because he himself never married. He expressed repeatedly mm -hmm. that he was too busy to do so. And everyone pretty much agrees that he was gay. Um, yeah. Now, this was illegal at the time. You can just ask Oscar Wilde that. But men of means and stature, it was impossible to be poor and gay pretty much because, I mean, honestly, you'd probably be killed by a lot of like your wow. fellow poor Terrible. people, right? Like, because yeah. it's very bigoted at the time. Uh, um, or you'd have to sucks. keep it completely secret. And yeah, uh, if you were rich, you could be gay and most people would know it. Like Rhodes is gay. It's illegal to be gay. Everyone in British society knows that he's gay. He brings yeah. these South, these white South African boys back to England with him, these younger men, and he takes them to parties with him. Yeah. Um, this, is my, uh, this is my assistant. 
Yeah, well, and there's like, oh, like he's 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 even more blatant than that. There's one story I heard about him where essentially like he's he's at a party with this young rude South African boy, and like the guy hosting the fancy British person hosting the party says, "Rhodes, I can't invite you to parties anymore if you're going to bring boys like this around." Like he almost broke my hand with his handshake, and Rhodes wow. said something along the side uh, the lines of, "You should see how hard he bucks. It's like a mule." Um, oh like so he's he's not super coy, right? Nah, he's not playing around, but I like. <laughs> I got pocket diamonds, so what you <laughs> yeah. gonna say? You know what yeah. I'm saying? And yeah. it, it, it's worth noting that a pretty high and oddly high number of British imperial icons of specifically this period were gay or some of them were, were they're called gay a lot, but I think it might be more accurate to say they were kind of romantic asexuals where mm. they had these very strong, very clearly romantic relationships with men that they yeah. probably never had sex with, but they would be inseparable. And it was just like a thing in imperialism. Yeah. I just feel like statistically speaking, it's impossible that there's any less amount of gay people there. No, than no, there no. Is now, you know what I'm saying? And, and there's, but, yeah, yeah. But, there's a reason why there are some reasons why they're probably overrepresented within sort of the subset of the English population that's doing the imperialist shit. Some of it is that, like we talked about earlier, if you're gay in a majority straight in a society where it's legal to be gay, you fundamentally see the world differently and that confers certain advantages. You yeah. are able to perhaps, especially since a lot of the other men doing this might be gay, build mm. stronger, more emotional relationships with them, um, which yeah. leads to more loyalty, which means you have this, this loyal band of like people who you can work with to accomplish these goals. It also means that yeah. like you probably find the culture back home stifling and you want to get out to a place where there are fewer rules and where uh -huh. you can you can get away with living, being the kind of person that you are. There's a quote from um, Rudyard Kipling's poem, um, one of his poems about imperialism that I think was about, um, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but the line is, um, send, we, send me somewhere east of Suez where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and a man can raise a thirst, right? So that mm. there's, you come across this a lot and I think it's just because, I think there's probably a number of reasons for it. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is a thing about Cecil and I'm not going to talk a whole lot more about it because I, I don't think it has all that much of a bearing other than to the extent that it kind of forms him into the man that he is. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the men he brought into his scheme was a physician named Leander Jameson. And he recalled that as early as 1878, Rhodes had formed the idea of doing great work for the overcrowded British public at home by opening up fresh markets for their manufacturers. As his business had expanded, so too had British colonial possessions in Africa. And Cecil noticed that when the empire grew, unemployment back home went down and average income went up. Things got better for the average people in his country because they were getting worse for the average people in other parts of the world. Um, yeah. So he recognizes this and he sees this as like a fundamentally positive thing. Um, and other these other white people that he's gathering him to, to himself at the time, they're deeply impressed and moved by his belief in the destiny of the Anglo-Saxon race. Uh -huh. um, and that's what he's able to get them to buy into. That's why they put so much trust and so much their, of their wealth in Rhodes. Um, and it's it's his biographer, Rodberg, kind of compares a lot of what Cecil's talking about in this time to, to Hitler's concept of Lebensraum, um, living space. Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. is very similar. You can trace the birth of these ideas um, or at least the, the birth of these ideas as a written down conception because they'd certainly been pursued earlier uh, to okay. Cecil. 
you know, and and he has British imperialism had a massive impact on Hitler. Uh, and in fact, he would he would yeah. constantly talk about both the United States and the British Empire and the land that they had to for their people to move in. It's part of why he wanted Eastern Europe, why he wanted Russia and Ukraine and Poland. Um because hmm. he wanted the same thing for the Germans that he saw these other empires getting. Um, so, yeah, it, it is worth like he he definitely Rhodes is is talking early about what will become these concepts that we recognize as key to 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 fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, I, I think, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And uh, Rhodes is also while he's kind of laying some of the in- intellectual foundations for the what will become fascism he's also laying a lot of the intellectual foundations for the system of global capitalism that we live under today this this idea okay. that you could have a whole world united in mass resource extraction and trade in uh-huh. 1888 after 16 years of building up his business holdings and a network of loyal toadies Rhodes uh, amalgamated all of these mines that he had and that his friends had accrued and he formed them into a single corporation De Beers Amalgamated Mines uh. so this is the De Beers Corporation is birthed now he's the first head of it. Uh, He's the chairman of De Beers. Now, in short order, De Beers swallowed up almost the entire diamond trade in Southern Africa. And as they gobbled up more and more mines, Rhodes streamlined the mining process, killing off the old way of diggers and diamond booms and refashioning the whole industry into a precise engine that ran on human misery. And I found a paper from an economic student at the University of Boulder that I think sums up what happens very well. And I'm going to quote from that now. Rhodes's colored workers were oppressed by his white managers and impaired by the atrocious living conditions. Once Rhodes had his miners, he and his British colonial authorities proclaimed a pass law in Kimberley. Black workers had to possess a document that stated their right to employment, and at the end of shifts, white policemen stripped the colored miners nude and probed their orifices for stolen diamonds. This indignity, however, was not forced upon the white laborers. To distinguish the manager's fear of theft, the blacks also had to live in prison-like compounds on site for the length of their contract. De Beers paid its colored workers an average of $97.50 per month, while the whites were paid an average of $480. And to break even, the laborers needed to make it at least $120 monthly. So he comes up with this idea of amalgamating, streamlining, and then getting this workforce that you have total control of. In the same way that like those those a lot of those factory workers in Shenzhen, China, making our iPhones are. Mm-hmm. And you keep them locked into a cycle of near poverty, forcing them to live in these compounds that he could control. Um, mm-hmm. He basically succeeded, as De Beers takes off, in yeah. re-enslaving a chunk of the black African populace for the benefit of the British Empire. Um, and this plan worked marvelously. In a few years, De Beers controlled between 90 and 95% of the planet's diamond supply. Wow. Yeah, and then they cracked open a bunch of De Beers. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's too... No, it was good. At, was frat, good. Account. at frat parties, where he was just like... At frat parties. Psh, yeah. Diamond. Psh, yeah. Diamond. Yeah. He's like, popping I got a, diamonds. Popping a top with his diamonds. All right. Yeah. Well, prop, that's the end of part one. Oh, there's great. so much more of this guy to go, but yes, that's there what is. we've got time uh, for now. Um, boy, this has gone on a bit. You you want to plug your pluggables, man? Yeah, I do, and I also want to just uh, diamonds are forever. Diamonds are forever. That's mm, that. Yeah. They can get the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that I mean that's 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 after his time, but he sets up a lot of the things that make the diamond trade what it is. Like, uh, yeah, we'll talk about this more at the end. But like, blood diamonds are a thing because of yeah. Cecil Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say, man. That's what I was like. That's where I would like when you started the thing. Yeah. That's what I was preparing myself for. Like, 
we're going to get to Blood Diamonds pretty soon. Well, um, let's talk about that at the end. We're not going to talk about it enough because uh-huh. there's so much of Rhodes to talk about. And yeah. he's not the only, he starts the process that leads to the creation of Blood yeah. Diamonds. There are a number of other men over decades who are like responsible for yeah. bringing us all down that path. But yeah. we will talk some about that yeah. at the end. Yeah. Well, prophiphop.com and Prop Hip Hop's all my um, handles, my social media. I just uh, announced a, not a blood coffee, a uh, but a real coffee um, collaboration with a company called Onyx, uh, where I got a special single origin Ethiopian blend. I'm going to get real nerdy with y'all. Well, not blend, a single origin Ethiopian. Um, it kind of tastes like dried pineapple it's pretty bomb uh and in the in in (laughs) in the spirit of what we're talking about right now like it's three brothers that own the farm they're born and raised in ethiopia one of them lives in la and the fair trade price for the bean is a buck 50 per pound but me and onyx paid nine bucks a pound because we believe in supporting real folks um so that's the biggest thing i'd plug right now is i got a coffee and if you're into like drinking good coffee please order hell it on yeah website. yeah and it's ethically sourced and we paid the people well we are not no cecil Rhodes. yeah uh don't be cecil Rhodes in your own life uh um, no. and don't come after me for calling him cecil and cecil interchangeably i know it's cecil whatever it, that's my fault yeah. cecil yeah yeah, no, fuck him. Like, yeah, basically, don't I don't, I don't have to respect right. this man enough, yeah. to pronounce his name right. No, no, he he got enough respect while he was alive and fucking up the world. To hell with him, right? And to hell with all of you, my beloved listeners. Um, <laughs> no, I I thank you for listening. Uh, come back for part two, where we'll talk about how he conquered two countries just for fun and did some other messed up stuff. Oh my God. Wait, well, no, we, true. We, we love about forty. 40- percent of you statistically yeah infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 live march 20th from the edge at hudson yards in new york city featuring a performance by john batiste the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 is an suv designed to help every passenger feel just right be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- 
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 